And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive... One group of administrative judges needs more independence, it says, from its agency. Plus, it's not a pretty picture, but this other agency snaps the same frame every year. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Merit Systems Protection Board spent years collecting and analyzing data on the prevalence of sexual harassment in federal workplaces. The board found that 21% of women and 9% of men in the federal workforce have experienced sexual harassment in some form. The report offers detailed findings and recommendations for agencies to try to mitigate that issue. The only problem? During a five-year absence of quorum for the board, the agency was prohibited by law from publishing the report. Now, after restoring quorum and releasing the report... MSPB says that even though the data does go back to 2016, there's still a lot of value for federal agencies and employees. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got details from the MSPB chairwoman, Kathy Harris. Sexual harassment continues to be pernicious and pervasive. The MSPB has been conducting surveys of the federal workforce regarding sexual harassment since 1980. This is the fourth time, the 2016 report is the fourth time that the MSPB had done so. This represents a very long-term perspective, and we thought we should continue to provide that historical perspective, and that's why we wanted to release the survey. It also captures employees' opinions at a particular point in time, The Me Too movement refocused national attention and worldwide attention on sexual harassment. So these opinions were collected from employees really either very early stages of that movement or just before. So we think that provides an interesting historical perspective. We also have conducted a new survey in 2021 of federal employees uh, regarding sexual harassment so that we could assess changes from the 2016 report uh, and to now. And our research team will soon be publishing a summary results based on the 2021, I'm sorry, 2021 data. I don't want to preempt that report, but we know from our research that the phenomenon of sexual harassment is still being perceived by federal employees and the impacts of sexual harassment on employees, the organization and mission accomplishment are persistently negative. Probably not that much of a surprise, but we thought it's part of our mission and duty to report on these matters and and we want to continue to do so. One contribution that we think would be useful for agencies is to provide practical recommendations, as well as suggestions for employees to better prevent and respond to sexual harassment. If we can just dive a little bit more into the report itself, one of the things I found kind of telling was that the the data showed that a lot of federal employees will at least from this older report, they'll take informal channels a lot of the time to deal with sexual harassment. And in contrast, just 11% will actually file a complaint. So in terms of, I guess, the recommendations you have for agencies, is there any way to shift the way that employees might be dealing with sexual harassment? And what does that reveal about the way agencies are handling it right now? I think one interesting finding from the report was that a lot of employees felt that Once they reported harassment, things got worse, which to me means that the avenues of reporting 
are not resulting in effective corrective action. It can mean a variety of things. It can mean they, uh, employees perceive that they're being retaliated against after they've reported it. It could mean that they've reported it, but nothing's done. Nothing changes. From our recommendations, I think the adequate funding to make sure the investigations are done fairly, thoroughly, and expeditiously, and that corrective action is taken promptly and effectively, I, I think that will help hopefully provide more confidence in employees' willingness to report through formal channels, right? So if they're reporting and nothing's changing, nothing's working, why are they, or if it indeed gets worse, what, you know, what's the incentive? Another part of the the report that I found pretty telling or even surprising was that there's kind of a contrast between how employees view their agencies when you break it down between those who have actually experienced harassment and those who have not. For example, those who did not experience harassment, 64% said they were confident that a charge of sexual harassment would be resolved, quote, fairly and justly. For that same question, if someone has experienced harassment, only 35% were confident that it would be resolved that way. So I think that to me kind of implies that the people who have actually been through the process are, you know, less confident in it. Is there something agencies can do? Is it sort of a lead by example? Or what, what, are, what would you recommend to agencies to try to instill more confidence in that system to resolve those cases? Employees who are going through that process, experience harassment, and then finding that nothing has changed or things get worse, is really demoralizing and, and upsetting and also not in line with the agency's legal responsibilities, if that's what in fact is happening. You know, I practiced law before coming to this position and represented many, many federal employees who experience sexual harassment. And, you know, my anecdotal experience is consistent with the findings in this report, which is that I think that when federal agencies do a good job of investigating matters fairly, and then that's followed up by agency leaders actually taking the appropriate action, that is hugely effective. It helps. I think there's breakdowns in the processes, both at the investigative stage and at the corrective action stage. And employees need to feel more competent that the agencies will be following through. And I think one of the recommendations, agency leaders modeling that they're following the policies and doing things to help showing employees, you know, we don't just care. We're not just giving you training, but we're actually following through when there are violations of our policy. We're doing the right thing. I think that that says a lot and that helps the next employee who comes along with a complaint you know, about another matter will say, oh, I saw them do this and, and really help this other person out and, and got rid of the problem or corrected the harassment or, you know, what, what, there's a, a wide variety of things that agencies can do. But modeling from the top down is, is hugely important. You know, MSPB has this really comprehensive report on sexual harassment and provides a lot of solid recommendations that agencies can take. How do you hold agencies accountable, or how do you really try to move the needle on getting some of these recommendations implemented? Well, we obviously can't make agencies take our recommendations and implement them, but they are required under the law to maintain an environment free of sexual harassment. That's what Congress has said, that employees have the right to be 
free of discrimination, which includes sexual harassment, one aspect of providing an effective and preventative program is showing that they've taken steps. They're taking continual steps to do so. And that will help agencies basically improve, but it will also help them with the defense to sexual harassment cases to say, well, you didn't do anything to correct the problem. You knew this existed. You didn't do anything. They didn't say, well, you know, no, we we adopted all the MSPB's recommendations. So we were doing what we could. I'm not saying that's going to insulate anybody from liability, but it, it certainly wouldn't hurt. One thing I found interesting was that, you know, all this data was collected and the report was compiled prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, which, as we all know, really reshaped how the office looks, how employees work. Do you think or do you anticipate that there might be any changes to sexual harassment cases at federal agencies because of that? Well, you would have hoped that numbers would go down, right? That the prevalence would go down with people being in less physical proximity to one another. But my understanding is that's not the case. It's still prevalent. I can't speak to the exact numbers until a report is released, but sexual harassment isn't going away. Merit Systems Protection Board Chairwoman Kathy Harris speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, it's not a pretty picture, but this agency snaps the same frame every year. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints, uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired. And um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, 
getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism and, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yep. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the 
founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.